Live from the Mert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. Uh, that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Download the app and listen to us live anywhere in the world but only you download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also Invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour for black men. The barbershop uh, is the one place where we can talk about anything and everything. Our guest in hour two believe then that by training barbers to become life coaches, they can help create a space where black men can feel comfortable opening up about their mental health struggles. May, as you know, is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we continue our series of conversations uh, about black um, about black men and mental health. Today, at least, last week, we talked about black women and their mental health. Today, black men and their mental health, joined by Nick uh, Rithold and Labid Aziz in Hour 2. In our third hour... Now, did you have any special training for this kind of leadership when you were a boy? No, I really didn't. I had no idea that I would be catapulted into a position of leadership in the civil rights struggle in the United States. I uh, went through the discipline of uh, early elementary school education and then high school and college and theological training, but never did I realize that I would be in a situation where I would be a leader in what is now known as the civil rights struggle of the United States. The book, anticipated uh, for quite a while now, King, A Life, publishes tomorrow. King, A Life is the name of the new book. It drops tomorrow. We've been waiting on this, as I said, uh, biography of Dr. King for quite some time now. It is the first full biography of Dr. King in decades and is already being referred to as the definitive biography of his life with revelatory research uh, exhaustive new research done by the author of that book, Jonathan Ogg. The text has already caused quite a stir uh, by claiming in part that MLK's famous criticism of Malcolm X was fraudulent. Among other controversies, the book is already stirred up. The author of that book, once again, King, A Life, Jonathan Ogg, joins us today in Hour 3 for the hour. I uh, cannot wait for that conversation with Jonathan about MLK. A lot of fascinating new stuff in the book. You don't want to miss our three today. But we commence today's program in this hour with two conversations. On the B side of this hour, a conversation with the former mayor of this city, Antonio Villaragosa, about the death last night of longtime uh, supervisor, uh, assembly member, city councilwoman, uh, Gloria Molina, a Latina, uh, regarded all across this country for being the first Latina to be in the California Assembly, the first Latina to serve on the city council, the first Latina uh, to be a county supervisor. A lot of history and a lot of folk have been inspired, a lot of women 
not Latinas, inspired by the life and legacy of one Gloria Molina. And we will offer a tribute to her with the former mayor, Antonio Villaragosa, on the B side of this hour. We commence today's program, though, talking politics with political analyst, writer, Democratic strategist, and host of the uh, the podcast, hashtag WokeAFDaily, Danielle Moody. Danielle, good to have you on. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me. It's my great delight to have you. Thank you for the time uh, and a uh, lot to cover uh, on this Monday. Uh, let me start with this. Um, this story has been uh, trending for, for, for a bit now. Uh, always fascinating stuff to cover on Monday mornings. Um, but we talked last week um, uh, quite extensively uh, and have uh, on a number of occasions about the choking death uh, in New York of jo- of Jordan Neely uh, by Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny, uh, 24-year-old uh, veteran, um, ex-Marine, uh, charged now with fatally choking Jordan Neely on that subway. Uh, for a while, we were afraid, uh, concerned that there would be no there'd be no charges in this case. Uh, but the Manhattan DA, uh, Alvin Bragg, the first brother to be DA, same uh, DA, who is now uh, embroiled in a in a case with uh, uh, Donald Trump, has decided to uh, to prosecute uh, Daniel Penny, and it's it, it's it's a trending story because um, they are raising money like nobody's business. The right has taken up the political right that is has taken up his case, and millions, and I do mean millions, millions of dollars are already being raised for his legal defense fund. Uh, So you choke a black man to death on a subway. Um, They have to decide days later whether or not they're they're even going to charge you for that choking death. And when they do, you start raising money like nobody's business for your defense fund, courtesy of a campaign that's being waged now by the political right to get behind Daniel Penny. Enough said uh, out of my mouth. What do you make of that reality, Daniel? Well, I come to you from New York City. I live in Brooklyn. And uh, what I will tell you about the charging in the first place of Daniel Penny comes because of the outrage, the collective outrage of a diverse community of New Yorkers who were in complete disgust at the lack of charging that had happened. It took over almost a week Mm -hmm. uh, after a man was lynched right, that Jordan Neely was lynched on a subway, uh, it took collective action and shutting down subway lines and protests in the streets and in subways in order for this to happen in the first place. What we have to understand about the political right in this country is, one, they are no longer a political party. Uh, they are an authoritarian cult, and they make stars of people who are murderers. You look at Greg Abbott and what he is doing uh, in Texas with wanting to pardon a man that was just sentenced to 25 years in, in jail for killing a Black Lives Matter protester. You look at Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse became a star and had a speaking spot at the RNC convention in 2020 after he was acquitted of killing two people, right, uh, at a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, and so when you see that a white man on a subway who has training because he's a former Marine, who should know better because his father is a former uh, chief of police in New York. Um, When you see this white man choke the life out of a black man, another human being, and it takes once again massive protests, statements from the White House in order to get a charge brought in the first place, 
what it makes me think about is one, how many of these stories don't make headline news, mm-hmm. right? And then number two, why aren't we talking about the political right in this country for who they are, right? They are a white supremacist cult that is investing in the death, torture, and oppression of black and brown people in this country. What, what do you make? Um, I, I love the fact that you are in Brooklyn today, um, and, and I love the fact that you uh, went uh, deeper into detail uh, about what it took to get these charges uh, uh, brought against Daniel Penny. I went shorthand, you went longhand, and I love it because I love the detail. Uh, but 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 it, but it raises it raises Danielle a question here, and let me just say at the outset, I I, I like Alvin Bragg, I have nothing against him. I, I know him; he's been a guest on this program, and yet there is something concerning about the fact that at one point it looked like he had done a 180 on the on the Trump investigation that was already underway before he got elected as the first black man, first black person ever to be DA in Manhattan. It looked like he was he was a moonwalking, shall we say, the Michael Jackson moonwalk away from the Donald mm-hmm. Trump case. And then all these protests erupted. As you know, being a New Yorker, a number of his uh, uh, deputy DAs resigned their position in protest over his slow, mm-hmm. over his slothfulness, as we uh, uh, it, it, perhaps I can use that word, his slothfulness about prosecuting Donald Trump. And eventually, because of the pressure, uh, one could argue, he decides to prosecute Donald Trump and the, and the rest, as we know, is history. And that case is underway now. To your point, the same thing happened with Daniel Penny, that there were protests and statements from the White House and Alvin Bragg in his office eventually a week later decided to prosecute Daniel Penny. There are a number of ways to read that. I don't need to color it much more for you. How do you read the fact that this office seems to take its time and oftentimes indicate they're going the other direction until dot, dot, dot? Your thoughts. What I know about prosecutors, uh, to be true, because I have a number of them on my shows on a regular basis, is that they don't like to bring cases that they think they can win. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 number one. Um, number two, I think that with regard um, to the Daniel Penny um, charging, I think that what we have to look at and what I want people to understand who listen to your program on a regular basis is that we all have a lot more power than we think collectively. Right. That when the people decide to come together and create pressure, right, uh, things get done and you see prosecutors move, you see mayors move, you see presidents move. Right. Because that is how important and how powerful collective voices are. I think that with regard to Donald Trump and bringing the cases there uh, and bringing the case there, this is this is unprecedented, right? That's that's what we continue to hear about Donald Trump over the last eight plus years. Is everything is unprecedented? It is that it is you know it is, there is no historic understanding or pattern for the behavior that we are dealing with right now. And so I think that to Alvin Bragg's credit, while I went hard on him in a number of ways, mm-hmm. a number of times, um, I think that he needed to make sure that he had everything, every dot, uh, every dot, uh, every I dotted, every T crossed, everything buttoned up, because not only was he going to be bringing a case, 34 felony indictments, charges against the former twice impeached president of the United States, but that he was also going to be a black man doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know what, what we know, how this former twice impeached president has radicalized his followers to threaten the lives of those that go against him. 
So I think that this has was very layered in terms of why it was slow to move. So that's the, that's the Trump issue. Uh, I, I take your, your your answer, and I don't disagree with it necessarily about why he took his time bringing charges against Donald Trump. When we come forward, I still want to follow up on the latter part of that, which is why it took a week to get Daniel Penny charged. A little bit different. Uh, this is not unprecedented. <laughs> White men have cured black men uh, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. So that ain't unprecedented. And we'll talk about why it took a week to get the charges. In this case, the charges, oh, again, finally came on Friday. Daniel Penny is going to be charged in the uh, choking death of Jordan Neely on that New York subway. Uh, but uh, Daniel Penny is raising a lot of money to the tune of millions already since today's Monday, right? Since Friday, they've raised millions of dollars already. Uh, the political right has for his legal defense fund. More with Danielle Moody when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Danielle Moody, host of uh, Hashtag Woke AF Daily and uh, delighted to have Danielle on our program uh, in this hour, uh, Daniel, we were talking a moment ago. You were talking a moment ago um, in answer to my question about why it it seems to take so long, uh, oftentimes for the DA in New York uh, to move on some of these major issues. Uh, it is New York, but these happen to be, of course, because it's New York national stories. I take your point about his um, his being deliberate, uh, if I can put it that way, and methodical about bringing charges against Donald Trump. And even then, uh, as you know, because you've discussed it on your program, I'm sure, uh, most legal experts say of all the cases that Donald Trump may very well face, of the five he may face, uh, this particular case is the weakest of the five. Uh, legally, it's the weakest. And so, again, uh, to your brilliant point, prosecutors don't like to bring cases they think they cannot win. So I take your your your, your point on 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 the on the Trump issue. Let me move now to this Daniel Penny case. That's a that's a that's a uh, a, a different issue. Uh, again, uh, nothing unprecedented about black men being killed by white men. In this case, of choking him to death on a subway in New York City um, uh, is what Daniel Penny did to Jordan Neely, and it took a week for charges to be brought. How do you explain that one? So this is what I'll say, and I'm going to speak very frankly about this. Um, we don't care about black lives, period, uh, in America, and that is apparent by the patterns of deaths and lynching that we have seen in modern era, not, not to mention what has historically happened in this country to black men in particular. But the other layered portion of why this took so long is because we also don't care about the homeless. We don't tend to mental illness in this country, particularly as it pertains to black people and black men. And so the idea that not only did we have to, those that were protesting, those that whether they were in subway stations, on their feet, in marchers or online um, or in legislative bodies, really calling attention to this crisis that we are in, a crisis of housing, uh, a crisis uh, of, of uh, emotional and mental well-being in this country is the fact that we had to convince people that Jordan Neely, even though he was unhoused, was worthy of life mm. and not just a burden and on society. Because that is how many, even those that see, see themselves as good-meaning progressives, see homelessness in their cities when they are trying to get to work or to and from an event or walking uh, in their neighborhoods and there are homeless people, unhoused people that are there. Right. So not only was it a that Jordan nearly was a young black man, but he was also an unhoused individual. Right. And so even listening to the words of Mayor Adams prior to the week, uh, the week of protest, even listening to the governor, Kathy Hochul and her thoughts on the Jordan nearly situation, it dismissed his humanity because he was unhoused. 
Mm-hmm. No, even those on the left uh, sometimes can get it can get it uh, get it wrong. Uh, and to to your point, I say all the time that sometimes you have to fight with your friends. <laughs> sometimes you got you got to you got to chin check your own friends. I hear your point loud mm-hmm. and clear. Um, let me just let me just put a finer point on this. In urging his followers to donate to this legal defense fund for Daniel Penny, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a likely Republican presidential candidate, compared uh, Daniel Penny to the Good Samaritan. I'm not making this up. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, compared Daniel Penny, the white man who choked this brother, Jordan Neely, to death. Ron DeSantis compared him to the Good Samaritan, a biblical figure, as you well know, who comes to the aid of a man who's been beaten, stripped of his clothes, and left on the side of the road for dead. Uh, DeSantis goes on to say, and I quote, let's show this Marine America's got his back, close quote. That's what Ron DeSantis said to his followers, encouraging them to donate to this fund for Daniel Penny. Uh, Representative Matt Getz, Florida Republican, called Mr. Penny a subway superman. And a long list of other Republicans who I don't have time to list here, have, uh, have, have signed on as well, and they are using their platforms to raise money for Daniel Penny as well. This reminds me, uh, the comments of Ron DeSantis remind me uh, of Ronald Reagan uh, announcing his candidacy. Some of you uh, were not around then, maybe too young to remember. Others may have misremembered or forgotten this. But Ronald Reagan was the governor of the state in which I sit right now, California. This station heard across the nation, but flagshipped in L.A. Ronald Reagan, of course, was the governor of California, but he left California and went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site of the lynchings of Goodman, Schroner, and Cheney. He went to Philadelphia, Mississippi to announce his candidacy for president. Why does a Mm. former governor of California go to Philadelphia, Mississippi to announce that he's running for president of these United States? Uh, I got a smart audience. I digress. I don't need to unpack that for you. But now you have Ron DeSantis in 2023 asking his supporters to, uh, to, to to donate to the legal fund of Daniel Penny, comparing him to the Good Samaritan. Uh, as somebody once said, Daniel, this feels like deja vu all over again. Mm-hmm. What What is old is always new with the Republican Party, right? And, and what has always been old is their Southern strategy, the belief that the, you know, the, the South will rise again, that white men will dominate, right? And when they get to see instances of eyes and then they look to whom they look at as superheroes that express the dominance that they know that they don't have right um so it is it's not shocking right it isn't shocking and that's why i say that folks folks get they get it twisted now because they don't know history right and that is purposeful Um, you heard uh, Danielle mention earlier in this uh, conversation, Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, who has said he plans to pardon Daniel Perry. You've got uh, Daniel Penny in New York City um, choking out a black man. You've got Daniel Perry, an Army sergeant who was sentenced to 25 years in prison earlier this month in Texas for fatally shooting an armed uh, uh, man during a Black Lives Matter protest in Austin. You heard Daniel say earlier that uh, Black Lives clearly don't matter. 
but 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 what Abbott is doing in Texas and what DeSantis is saying in Florida and raising money for Daniel Penny and all these other Republicans, again, supporting and raising money for Daniel Penny suggests to me that we're going to have a, uh, a another round of these cultural wars in this 2024 race. We'll continue on the other side. I've got 90 seconds now, Daniel. Your thoughts on the coming cultural wars or the continuing, the escalating cultural wars we can look forward to in 2024, given what we've just talked about here. Oh, they are going to be real. And the fact is that the Republican Party has been waging war on our democracy since 2016. And it isn't just a culture war. It isn't just about gas stoves or M&Ms or whatever, you know, issue that they want to bring up. That seems superficial. They are waging a war on democracy and government foreign by the people. And mm-hmm. people need to wake up to that. So while, um, while, while uh, let me just say one, this, let me do this first. So we're talking about Ron DeSantis and his insane comments, um, raising money for Daniel Penny, uh, again, the white brother who killed the, the black man, Jordan Neely, in the subway, choked him to death in New York City, encouraging his uh, supporters to send money, comparing Daniel Penny to the Good Samaritan. Uh, Donald Trump is annihilating Ron DeSantis in his biggest poll lead yet. So if you think Ron DeSantis is bad, you already know that Trump is 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 as equally bad or worse. A new poll suggests he's trouncing Ron DeSantis, who is yet to declare uh, in the latest poll. And while all of that is going on, Joe Biden, the Democratic president, was at Howard University this weekend at their commencement calling white supremacy the most dangerous terrorist threat in America. Two sides of the same coin, two different coins. Lots to talk about when we come forward. Daniel Moody on KBLA Talk. Danielle Moody on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis. It does indeed with Daniel Moody, host of Hashtag Woke AF Daily, who we are delighted to have on in this hour. Later in this hour, we are uh, expecting a phone call from the former mayor of this city, Antonio Villaragosa, uh, to hear his thoughts on the passing uh, last night of Gloria Molina, a uh, longtime Latina politician in this state, uh, highly regarded across the nation uh, for uh, her history-making uh, election victories uh, at a number of levels, including the California Assembly. L.A. City Council, L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Uh, she passed away after a three-year battle with cancer last night. So we'll hear from Antonio Villaragosa, former mayor of this city, uh, in, um, in, in in some minutes from now. We continue for the moment, though, our conversation with Daniel Moody. Once again, I'm delighted to have on this program. Um, Danielle, we were talking moments ago about uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, his raising money, along with other politicians, are for Danielle Penny. Uh, the white brother who choked out Jordan Neely, choked him to death on that New York subway. Uh, it took the Manhattan DA's office a week, but they finally brought charges against uh, Daniel Penny. Uh, Daniel Penny, too many, too many Daniels. Daniel Penny, Daniel Perry, Daniel Moody. <laughs> it's too many, Dan- too many Dannys in this hour. Uh, I digress. Forgive me, Daniel Moody, uh, for, for 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 that. Uh, but but you're, we were talking about uh, about uh, Ron DeSantis and and again his raising money and others raising money for uh, for Daniel Penny. Uh, and I said, if you think that's bad, um, the latest news is that Donald Trump essentially annihilates Ron DeSantis in his biggest poll lead yet. Uh, nearly three quarters uh, of likely Republican voters uh, would pick uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this is an this is a, an Emerson College study. So with all that Donald Trump is up against, um, uh, one prosecution already underway, uh, one just uh, passed, found guilty last week in the Eugene Carroll 
uh, rape and defamation case. Alvin Bragg's office has their case underway. We're still waiting on Fannie Willis in Fulton County, Georgia, still waiting on Letitia James in New York State, still waiting, of course, on the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, on uh, two cases in the D- in the DOJ office. Of course, the case of the papers at Mar-a-Lago and his involvement in January 6th. So there's still stuff to come, and yet his poll numbers keep rising against his most uh, robust uh potentially most robust rival, Ron DeSantis. How are you reading these poll numbers for Donald Trump? I mean, I think that they are very telling about what the Republican Party wants um, for America, right? They want a man who does not believe in law and order because he doesn't follow the law himself. They want a man that uh, has steeped his policies around grievance and cruelty. You know, I oftentimes want when when the mainstream media wants to roll up on, you know, these these white diners in the in the Midwest and, you know, ask these people about all oh, the issues that they're facing and their economic, quote unquote, anxiety, which we know is just code for racism. You know, what is it that Donald Trump did for you over the last four years? How was your life actually better? Like, tell me specifically why you would vote for this man again. And I often hear, you know, not a lot. What it is that Donald Trump offers these people is that they hate the same people and they want to make sure that the same people don't have access to opportunities or the American dream in the way that they do. Right. So so long as your neighbor down the street is suffering, it doesn't matter if you have any more money in your pocket, any more food in your fridge or any more medicine in your medicine cabinet. It just you want to make sure that the person down the street doesn't have right, which makes you feel like you have more. And I think that the responsibility now that we know where the Republican Party is going to put their weight, uh, which is behind Donald Trump, continue behind Donald Trump, is twice impeached, you know, 34 times indicted, uh, now found uh, liable for sexual abuse and defamation, that they're going to put their weight behind this man. It is up to Democrats uh, and the Biden administration to paint a picture of America that is one that is abundant mm-hmm. as opposed to the scarcity that the Republic, the scarcity and fear that the Republican Party is all too good at selling. We'll get to Joe Biden here in just a second. Um, let me just give you a bit more detail about this survey. Uh, this Emerson College survey found that nearly three quarters, I said 70 percent of likely Republican voters in Kentucky specifically would pick Trump in a hypothetical GOP primary with DeSantis a distant second at 14%, giving the former president a 56-point lead over Ron DeSantis. And that's in Kentucky, uh, a very, very, very red state. That's the home state, as you know, of Mitch McConnell, the minority leader. And so in that state, uh, the Simerson College Survey finds that he would trump, uh, pardon the pun, trounce, Ron DeSantis with that election held today by 56 points. And so his his lead in these polls, at least, continues uh, to gain momentum. Uh, let me turn now to Joe Biden, who you referenced a moment ago. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that uh, President Biden was at Howard University this weekend uh, giving a commencement at an HBCU uh, and uh, referred to called white supremacy as the most dangerous terrorist threat uh, facing our democracy I'm quoting the president now. I'm saying this wherever I go, close quote, uh, the president said to the graduating class at Howard University. So on the one hand, we have what we just discussed, which I don't need to uh, reiterate. On the other hand, you have Joe Biden at Howard talking to black graduates, telling them that white supremacy in 2023 is still the most dangerous terrorist threat to this nation. Your thoughts, Danielle Moody. 
you know, Joe Biden is right. I mean, look, we we knew this from 10 years ago when reports came out by both the FBI and the CIA that said basically the same exact thing, that white domestic terrorism is on the rise in this country and that that is the greatest threat to our nation, that it isn't uh, these foreign adversaries that we've been able to hype people up around, that it is actually your next door neighbor. Right. Uh, who was more likely to arm themselves and head to the Capitol building than there be another 9-11. And so I think that it's really important for this president to continue to voice that very real truth, which is what he did in a speech in Philadelphia last year, or it could have been the beginning of this year. I don't even understand time uh, post-COVID. Um, but the reality is that white supremacy is a problem and an issue that is growing just over the weekend, there were 150 masked white supremacists that were able to march on the Capitol on Mother's Day weekend. There is no rest for evil in this country. So I think that it is really important and that we need to be asking our legislators, why are there no laws on the book for domestic terrorism? That's a powerful question, and I know you don't ask it rhetorically, uh, and we've discussed that before, and we'll discuss it again. And uh, now that you've teed it up, we'll, we'll invite you back to join us in that conversation. Uh, <laughs> Danielle Moody, it's a, it's a powerful question that uh, demands uh, an answer. Danielle Moody is host of Hashtag Woke AF Daily, co-host of The Daily Beast, uh, Hashtag The New Abnormal, and co-host of Democracy-ish. She's a busy system, and yet she found 45 mm-hmm. minutes in her schedule to talk to us. Danielle, thank you for your insights. Good to have you on. I promise we'll do it again. Thank you so very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. We move now from Danielle Moody to the former mayor of this city, Antonio Villaragosa. Mayor Villaragosa, how are you this morning, sir? Travis, how are you doing this morning? Man, I'm doing the best I can. As I say all the time, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. Um, the news last night of the passing of Gloria Molina uh, was uh, not at all uh, surprising. Um, she announced uh, some months ago um, that she was in the final stages of her life. Um, she knew she had terminal cancer, so not a surprise to any of us. But I wanted to get you on for just a few minutes between now and the top of the hour to get your reflections on the life and legacy of Gloria Molina. I've already told this audience, and many of them, of course, uh, have been in L.A. for years, so they know they know her history-making run in this city as the first Latina to be in the California Assembly, the first Latina on the L.A. City Council, the first Latina uh, to be a county board of supervisor member. Uh, quite the track record, but you knew her personally. You've known her for a long time. So let me start by asking how you first came to know your friend, Gloria Molina. I was at a party, and uh, a guy who I worked with at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, in the 19, uh, late 1970s, 1980s, said to me, see that woman across uh, the room? I said, yeah. He says, I want to date her. <laughs> a, few, a, a few months later, I was their best man in the wedding. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I mean, and, uh, you know, I've been friends with her ever since. I was in a lot of those battles where she was the first, uh, the battle for city council, uh, the, the battle for supervisor. Um, you know, we go way back and I've said so many times, um, you know, I always understood because I came out of the Chicano movement and the civil rights movement overall, 
I always understood that I, I was there on the shoulders of others. And I've said so many times that uh, I was on the shoulders of Rosa Parks and Dolores Huerta and Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez, but also people like Gloria Molina. Uh, in so many ways, she could have and should have been uh, the first Latino mayor, but, you know, city wasn't ready for that then. And, uh, well, I'm not sure they were ready for me, which is why I lost the first one. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, you know, she, she's got big shoes to fill for anyone. And uh, she's been a trailblazer. Uh, you know, she was always for the little guy, for the voiceless, for the for the working man and woman, but wasn't necessarily for the unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said to someone who mentioned that this morning, I said, well, probably had something to do with, in every fight she was with, and uh, the unions usually went with the guy running against her. Right? Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and, um, but, you know, a fighter, um, a woman uh, who was very close, by the way, to, with Maxine, mm-hmm. with Maxine Waters. Uh, they, uh, I read where she said once that she got her first big check, I think a $5,000 check, when she ran for... Uh, city council or something uh, was from uh, Maxine. That's right. So uh, they go way back, and uh, so do I. Yeah. Um, the best man <laughs> in their wedding. Uh, that, that you do you you you, you do go way back. Um, let, let me ask you. Let me ask you about um, about the history. Um, the 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 history that uh, that she paved uh, that she created. Uh, and pave paths for others. Again, it's the first Latina in any number of these institutions, the assembly, the city council, the, the county board. Because you were there every step of the way, uh, again, you you were there when she got married. Um, what do you make of what she, in fact, was able to accomplish as a Latina, as, as a woman? Well, I, I think, you know, you know, politics was very much a man's world back then. And, um she didn't uh, take kindly to uh, the, you know, the, the kind of uh, chauvinism that comes from guys from time to time, particularly back then. And, and uh, you know, she'd, uh, if you came before her or, or told her she couldn't do something, uh, uh, she would eviscerate you with her tongue mm. uh, and, then, and then do what she set out to do. And and, you know, a trailblazer for women, uh, but women of color. But, you know, I always say, you know, you, I think you've heard me say this, when you open up the door for one of us, you open up the door for all of us, mm-hmm. which is why it's so important to open up these doors and to break these glass ceilings. I used to say and that, um, you know, it's not enough to bang on your chest and say how great I am. Uh, we're here on the shoulders of others, so uh, what you do is, you, you keep that door open. Mm. And uh, she certainly opened up the door. Uh, she held the bureaucrats, you know, accountable. She wasn't afraid to, uh, to, 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 to set high standards. Um, and she always had high standards for herself. Uh, I'll tell you something. Uh, she was the master of constituent work. Mm. She understood that, you know, you can get up and give a speech, but if you're not taking care of the case loads that come before you, the issues, the, you know, the, the, the concerns that the individual concerns that people have, you're missing the forest for the trees. And, um, 
you know, without question, someone who uh, wouldn't take no for an answer um, and was always ready to do battle, no matter how popular or unpopular that battle was. When she came to the L.A. City Council back in 1987, I was just a young kid working for another mayor of this city. I didn't have the honor of working for Antonio Villaraigosa, but I did work for his predecessor, a guy named Tom Bradley, um, the longest-serving mayor in this city's history, and that record would never be broken given that they have term limits now. But the mayor uh, served for five consecutive terms, 20 years as mayor of the city of Los Angeles. I had the honor of working for him. Uh, so in 87, when she comes to the city council as the first Latina, I'm in the building working for, for Tom Bradley, and I recall even then, um, to your point, how she didn't suffer fools, and she was always tough in questioning. Frankly, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody in the assembly, at the city council level, uh, at the board of supervisors, to your point of her holding bureaucrats accountable. She developed a reputation. Um, I would call it being a tough questioner, a tough inquisitor. She was called all kind of other names that I can't repeat on family radio. But what did you make of her style when it came to holding bureaucrats accountable? You know, in my style, I thought sometimes it was a little uh, tough, particularly, uh, you know, dressing people down. Mm-hmm. But she didn't do it to be tough, per se. She did it because she felt like her constituents deserved better and that uh, we had to set higher standards for the kind of service we delivered. And, and as you know, when she got on that council, um, she wasn't afraid to mix it up with anybody. And by the way, uh, thank you for mentioning Tom Bradley because wherever I go, I say I'm on the shoulders of, of Tom Bradley. I mentioned some of the people, but I always mention him because uh, he, created, he created the template. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, with respect to her, uh, she, she held nobody uh, above her constituents. I don't care how powerful you were. I don't care how important you were. Uh, she'd give you a tongue lashing if she felt uh, that you were doing something that wasn't in the interest of her community and her constituents. Yeah. Gloria Molina was the first Latina on the city council, but she never became uh, L.A. City Council president. Uh, Nuri Martinez did, another Latina, uh, years later, speaking of the doors that Gloria Molina opened, uh, years later, Nuri Martinez would be president of the L.A. City Council. We all know how that ended, uh, going up in flames, uh, being forced to resign after that racist audio tape came out. I raise that only because you have uh, Gloria Molina opening doors for people like Nuri Martinez uh, years uh, years later, uh, and yet Nuri Martinez, um, uh, again, uh, uh, put a black eye, if you will, uh, put a stain uh, on this city, and many Latinos feel put a stain on them. So you have, again, one woman who's making history, another making history, one opening doors, another uh, will not be so fondly remembered. I raise that to ask whether or not you think all the work that Gloria Molina did, uh, given this new Martinez tape, has done sort of irreparable damage, perhaps, to Latinas who want to run for office. No, I, I think people see it for what it was. Right. You said it. It, it was a racist diatribe mm-hmm. uh, by her and the others who participated in that conversation. I don't think it's reflective of, uh, you know, the trailblazers who have opened up the doors. 
Um, and I, without question, uh, believe, uh, like um, so many of us, uh, that there's no there's no room in this town for that kind of divisiveness. And you know, one of the things I was proudest of, you know, right after all of that happened, uh, there was a you know a large number of, of Latinos who called for their resignation. Indeed, uh, indeed. And, you know, and, and, you know I knew, I've known Gilbert Cedillo for uh, 55 years. That wasn't easy for me to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known Kevin for 20-some-odd for years. I, I supported Murray, but when you're wrong, you're wrong. And you, you have to be accountable. Uh, and there are consequences for doing the kinds of things that, uh, uh, you know, saying and doing the kinds of things they, they said and, and from my vantage point, I don't think it's reflective of anything. And if you looked at the number of protesters, the faces, it was majority Latino. Yeah, no. Nope. Uh, or certainly, you know, 40 to 50 percent were Latino. So, um, you know, I think it's just uh, the cruel uh, and ignorant, divisive rhetoric of a few, not, not emblematic of, uh, you know, majority. Yep. Before I close, I got just three minutes left with you. Three, tri- three, uh, three tight minutes here. Before I close by asking you uh, the exit question uh, about uh, Gloria Molina's legacy, um, tell me right quick what you think the future of Latino politics is in this city. One of your other friends, uh, Karen Bass, is now the, the, the mayor, first black woman to be mayor, and I know you uh, celebrated that and were campaigning hard for her. But what do you make of Latino politics uh, in terms of the future in this city? I think politics, period, not just Latino politics, is about coalition politics. Right. Uh, I've always believed that. Uh, I grew up uh, in the Chicano movement, but, you know, real quick got involved. You know, I, I first met Karen in 1973, uh, 50 years ago, um, you know, in the Coalition Against Police Abuse. Um, and a uh, number of us uh, were involved uh, organizing uh, across racial grounds. And I, I've always believed that uh, the, the, the best leaders are the leaders that want to bring us together and that, yeah. that want to represent every community. And I think that's who Karen is. And I think if Latinos want to be successful in politics, that's who they have to be. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I, I saw Ed Royball, who I knew historically what he had done uh, locally. Um, you know, Tom Bradley took that and took it citywide, and I replicated that, you know? Back when, in fact, I think I remember a young Tavis Smiley and some of our friends, (laughs) Cornell West, and so many of us back then, we knew that if we opened up this door and broke that glass ceiling, we knew we were all coming in together. And and by the way, when I say that, I mean that with every group, you know, Jews and, you know, whites and Asians and Armenians and Persians, this town is a diverse town, yeah. uh, one of the most diverse in the country, and it needs to be a town that has leaders that bring us together Indeed and it does. fight for all of us. Got 45 seconds, Mayor Ragosa. Your, your final thoughts on the, the, the enduring legacy of Gloria Molina. A warrior, a woman uh, of impeccable integrity, uh, a tough woman uh, with a soft heart, uh, for her community and her constituents. The former mayor of the city of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaragosa. Mayor Villaragosa, thank you for 
Um, sharing your thoughts on what, miss, what must be a, a difficult day for you, given that you were the best man in her wedding. Uh, but I thank you for taking the time, as you always do, to receive our phone call and to come on the air on KBLA Talk for Kennedy. Thank you, sir. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Tab. It's good to talk to you. Invite me again. I, you know, I love being on your show. You're, you're kind. We'll do it again, sir. Thank you. Hopefully under different circumstances. That's our one of Tab and Smiley, hour two when we come forward. And for that matter, hour three as well. Uh, we'll talk about this new King uh, biography, King, A Life, with the author Jonathan Icke. Uh, some controversy is already being um, uh, already erupted, I should say, uh, courtesy of this text and a great conversation in hour two as well. You're listening to Tab and Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.